0: Good morning again. You know, that one hymn that we just sang um, in the black book, 391, um, really has some great little words in it I want to go back and look at momentarily just as a means of continued worship. Um, Come ye sinners poor and needy. I was, I was thinking about this as we were singing it, and um, the third verse is just profound, and this speaks to what we're talking about in Colossians 3:16 where the things that we sing together and to each other so as we were singing that hymn you were fulfilling what Paul is speaking about in Colossians 3:16 where you're communicating the wonders of God's grace we'll see that today in the latter portion of that passage but as you're singing, you're actually edifying the person next to you with profound doctrine that is, that's scriptural. And this verse is very profound. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. So, so as you talk about that, this is what we're, we're talking about in terms of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing as to the Lord to each other exemplifying and proclaiming what it is that he has done for you and what he has done for the person next to you. And so, as a way of example to drive home the point of verse 16 in Colossians chapter 3, this is exactly what Paul is talking about. This is why it's important to be here. This is why it's important to participate in the worship. He goes on to say, look what he says in the next passage, this, the author here by Joseph Hart, If you tarry till you're better, are you ever going to be better? No, No, absolutely not. So he's speaking to the eternal condition, the the, the permanent fixed condition of the unregenerate. Until God intervenes and saves them, you will never come at all. You will never come at all. And I like the idea that we can go to Christ and he will embrace us. And there are 10,000 charms. He's inexhaustible was what that is communicating to us. Um, and he, the, the, the hymn goes on to exemplify. I mean, this song would not be sung in most churches today. First of all, verse 1, you couldn't sing it. Come ye sinners. We not, we're not allowed to talk about sin anymore. You, I mean, there are churches who are deliberately going through their hymnals and through their liturgies and through even passages in the Bible. They will skip over verses that have the word sin in it. Or they change the word sin to mean something less, something less profound and impactful, you know, an infraction or a misstep. No, sin is an affront to God. It is missing the mark. It's violating the principles of Scripture. And so this is a great example of what Paul is speaking to, and I wanted to kind of drive that point home by way of example um, for us this morning. I thought that would be a helpful way to make some practical application um, as what this passage means so if you have your bibles of course i trust that you do colossians 3. colossians chapter 3 we're going to be continuing to work through this and looking at the importance of what paul is talking about here um, in the scope of the verses between 12 and 17. Uh, are very, very significant. And before we do that, let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for this time to be together as the redeemed of Christ. And we are so grateful that you have seen fit to rescue us and to bring us into uh, your kingdom by and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, we stand and, and plead only his righteousness. We claim only what he has done. And we are so grateful that you have Uh, been so merciful and gracious to us. Help us to have a heart of thankfulness, as we will look at in Colossians today, and a thankfulness that is driven by and and reflective of Your grace. Uh, we, We are overwhelmed and consumed by the wonders of what You have done for us, and we praise You for that. Open our hearts and our minds to understand Your Word today. Help us to see the meaning of these passages with clarity Uh, Help us to comprehend these things not only in word, but then to engage them in deed. Uh, We pray, Lord, bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit, uh, without which our efforts are futile. We ask, Lord, that you would keep us and preserve us. Thank you, Lord, for being that great protector and defender of which we read in Psalm 18. And even though we seem and feel to be sharply assailed and buffeted by all that goes on in the world today. It seems to be insurmountable. Everywhere we go, we're accosted by uh, the, 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 the evilness and the wickedness of men and the agenda of the unrighteous. But we know in the end that you prevail. The victory is yours. Help us to rest in that. And even though we may die, we know that we will be with you, which is indeed far better. Thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for loving us beyond measure. Help us to love you more. Help us to love you better. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Well, last Sunday, we were focused on the issue of how Paul expects and anticipates the worship of this congregation to be informed by the doctrine that he has been teaching them. We talked about the idea that Paul was concerned, clearly, that in the terms of what this body of believers was doing corporately in their worship, that it would indeed be worship. Paul is for us here defining in, in, in a way the, the context and the content of corporate worship. And so we need to recognize that this instruction is important to us, and what we also need to recognize is that we just don't get to do it any way that we think is okay, Indeed, we talked about things that are suitable or appropriate even in terms of worship. And I talked at the end of my message um, with regard to things that we may do at home and in our private lives that are perfectly fine, that you have full freedom and liberty in Christ to do and enjoy, which may not be appropriate to do here At church would not be an appropriate means of communicating the wonders and the glories of Christ. As I noted you may smoke a cigar at home on your back deck and that's perfectly suitable but we're not going to hand them out as you walk in the back door to enjoy while we're worshiping together. I made reference to a bottle of Blue Nun. I think all but one person knew what that was uh, here. Uh, But if you need to know, Blue Nun was a wine that was made back in the day, and it was bad. It was the dregs of the barrel. It was not worth having, but it was popular amongst the dregs of society, I think. So whatever wine you want to put in your mind is fine, but we're not going to be handing out those things as you walk in the back door, although we could talk about communion in that context, and that's a discussion for another day. Oh, boy. But nonetheless, Paul here is saying to us and to the church that worship is important and worship ought to have a content that is reflective of the doctrine that you understand. And so what we find then is that our worship is, is, is significant because of its content. It's worship because of its content. The content directs us to something outside of ourselves. If we're just singing about our feelings and our emotions and things of that nature, then that really isn't worship. That's just entertainment. That's amusement. And we know that the word amusement is derived from two Greek words, which mean not to think. The word "a" in the Greek means no. Muse means thank. So, amusement means to not think. And that's what we often find in the church today. So, Paul is concerned about the content. And it's important for Paul because it is the means by which you then are communicating your teaching and admonishing with all wisdom, predicated upon the words of Christ, which richly dwell within you in the singing that you do at church, in the way that you express yourself vocally in the context of corporate worship. That's important. I think the church has lost sight of that. Indeed, we lament the fact that the church today, in terms of its worship, often looks more like the world than anything else. We've lost the sense of the sacred. And I think Paul is saying to us here that there is a sacred element to our worship. Let's go back to Psalm 18 for a moment. And I intentionally read Psalm 18 because it's a unique psalm because of the way in which it opens. The words at the beginning of the psalm are as significant as the words that follow, and they are to be communicated and understood. We understand that this is first and foremost for the choir director. So now all of a sudden the choir director is having to operate within the parameters of something that David is defining under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's significant. He just doesn't get to make it up. He just doesn't get to do whatever he wants. And so this is presented, and it's a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, and he said. And as you go through it, you can see that it's rich in theology, and it's rich in praise of the provision of the Lord, and his strength in the Lord, and the Lord's sustenance in all of those things. So this psalm then directs our worship in terms of what we come together to do corporately. It then controls and it contains our minds. It gives us boundaries within which to work. It doesn't just become a focal point of, of some uh, uh, demonstration of talent or ability, not that those things aren't important, but the content of what is communicated is what is significant. And that's what Paul is driving home. Indeed, in verse 16, he talks about Psalms, and many theologians believe that David, or that Paul was, in fact, referring more specifically to the Psalms of David because the Psalms of David tended to be more lyrical, tended to be written for corporate worship and singing. And so that's significant. There are many churches today who still sing the Psalms, it's called the Psalter. When Debbie and I went to London, we went to Metropolitan Tabernacle for their evening Sunday evening service. That's all they sing is the Psalter. And it was unique. And the hymn book was nothing more than psalms put to music. And that's what we sang. And it was quite nice. And it's something I think that we can even think about here at Community Bible Church um, because certainly God has given us a wonderful songbook, hasn't he? And I think it's something that we need to reflect on in terms of our own worship as we're being informed by God's Word, which is what we want to do. So, if we're going to allow the words of Christ to richly dwell within us, then let's sing the words of Christ in the context of what he has given us and and worship him in that way too. Not that we can't sing other things. I'm not of the mind that we have to eliminate all other other expressions in that context, but certainly... I think they ought to have a place in our worship. And so for us today, we have instruction, and that's important for us, isn't it? We often want to know what we are to do as Christians. We often want to know, well, what do I do next? What is the proper process for achieving the ends to which we have been assigned by the Lord? Well, this is one of those. This is one of those. As we look at this passage here in verse 16, we've taken the time to unpackage the meaning of the first part of this verse, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So what is controlling my quote-unquote experience, we're all so into our experience today, is the word of Christ, which makes my experience then objectively based, not subjectively based, which can lead to all sorts of nonsense, we've seen that. Gold falling out of ductwork, people rolling around on the ground, people claiming all sorts of nonsense that somehow gives them legitimacy in terms of their experience. The problem is is that your experience has to become more extreme in order to continue to legitimize your belief. God's Word is the fixed body of truth. I don't have to change it, nor does it need to be changed. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever forever. And that gives me great comfort and hope in terms of my worship. And so Paul then says that this this richly dwelling word, as it dwells within me, comes out in wisdom and teaching, this this, this with all wisdom I'm teaching and admonishing. And that can happen individually through the use of a spiritual gift, the speaking gift as it relates to opening up God's word to other people but also in the context of singing, of, of what we do together in terms of our worship. What we see from Paul then is that music is a means to an end, a divine end, a sacred end, when used in the setting of the church. And I submit to you, and my belief is that worship, the music in church is different than what we should ought to be experiencing in the world. You know, it's interesting you go back and you look at church history. So in the 1940s, big band music was popular, wasn't it? Nelson Riddle and uh, others, Frank Sinatra, that whole group was singing songs that were insanely popular with people, and you went to dances, and that's what you heard. But for some reason, they didn't incorporate the big band music into the church. Well, why not? Because I think at that point in time, we had still had a sense of what the sacred was. But today, that's not the case. You can go to any club in Cleveland, and in all likelihood, the music that you hear there will be the same that you hear on Sunday morning, at least in terms of its presentation and its, its, its performance and sound, if you will, what it sounds like. I think there's a lot of harm in that. And as the church becomes more like the world, we lose and we disengage what Paul is talking about here. And I do think that there are means and manners of expression that are more appropriate for communicating the content and the wonder of the work and person of Jesus Christ. T. David Gordon, in his book, Why Johnny Can't Sing, addresses this issue, and I want to bring it to your attention. He has a chapter called Sacred Music, and he says this, the concept of sacred music is not one that should be dismissed lightly or without serious reflection. And Paul is clearly here talking about the content of something that is sacred. The attempt of those who have historically devoted themselves to it has been to create music suitable to that remarkable occasion in life when the, creator meets the, when the creature meets the creator, when the mortal meets the immortal, when, yes, the temporal meets the eternal, when time meets eternity. So let's think about that for a minute. That's that's a profound statement, and what Paul says to us, too, is that there is something exceptional about what is happening corporately with the body of Christ. You are not just here merely in in the context of entertainment, like you're going to a festival or of something that you're hearing at the fair. You may go to the fair this week in Randolph, and they're going to have a country music singer there. That's different than what happens here, completely different. Now, friends, we we can't lose sight of this. This is where the church has become diminished. The sense of wonder has been lost. Think about what he says. The The attempt of those who have historically devoted themselves to it has been to create music suitable to that remarkable occasion in life when the creature meets the creator. Do you understand that that's what's happening here today? That's what the preaching of the word of God does. It brings you into into connection with that which is eternal and which is above you, which is indeed sacred. When the mortal meets the immortal, when, yes, the temporal meets the eternal, when time meets eternity, whether consciously or not, I suspect the one criterion that every one of these individuals has rejected right off the bat was and is contemporaneity. The one thing that sacred music cannot do is to omit the divine. And the divine is eternal, timeless, without beginning or end, the alpha and the omega. So think about it. Reflect back with me for a moment on Psalm 18. Does it not do that? Was not that psalm reflecting on the divine, on the eternality of the divine, on the timelessness of the divine? that the divine is without beginning or end, that the divine is the Alpha and the Omega. That's what the psalm did for us. It drove us in to that context. Now, as the word of Christ is richly dwelling within me, I'm going to want to sing about that. I'm going to want to think about that in the context of my worship. He goes on to write, In terms of form, then contemporary music might be very appropriate for for meetings between temporal beings. But is it appropriate for an immortal God meeting beings who by Christ's power to resurrect will one day be immortal themselves? Note the way in which the rhetorical question is raised. The question is not whether it is lawful to employ contemporary form. The question is whether it is appropriate. And so I would encourage you to pick this book up. He has much more to say on these issues in this book, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. He also has a book called Why Johnny Can't Preach, Not that I would necessarily have titled it that, but nonetheless, (laughs) you know what I mean. It makes the same point. In 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 the book on preaching, he makes the very same point that preachers have divested themselves of their anchor in the Word of God. And as a consequence, they're not preaching. They're entertaining. It's a TED Talk. And so as we see then... We, we have to understand that what Paul is saying to us here is that the content of our worship is necessarily divine and sacred because of its focus, because of its focus. And so, as I noted last week, our worship, both in song and word, is to be God-glorifying, Christ-focused, and word-driven. And as we will see today, spirit-enriched, which is important for us. music is here for paul intended to communicate transcendent truths and to teach that transcendent message to each other that's why paul connects it back into with the idea of doing this with all wisdom that is teaching and admonishing teaching is instruction admonishing is connected to correction as we noted last week in our study of this passage. And so, we we need to make certain that we're understanding and comprehending the significance of what Paul is talking about here. Michael Horton again in his book, Christless Christianity, addresses the problem that this type of worship poses. In writing with relationship to the church's relationship with the world, he says the following, there is a direct correlation then between a theology of self-salvation and the church chiefly as a center of human rather than divine activism. No longer do we need formally trained ministers of the word, but charismatic and entrepreneurial leaders who can inspire activistic movements. According to scripture, however, the church is the creation of the word, capital W, W, Like the first creation, the new creation arises from God's activity, not from its own inherent possibilities. Furthermore, the gospel is a particular kind of word, capital W, as we have seen. It's good news, and it creates its own community, making strangers into a family. Far greater than any natural affinity, the event of Christ and the reporting of this event forges a new community in the Spirit that is different from any circle of friends we would have naturally chosen for ourselves. Now, think about that. That's, that's so profound. And this is what Paul is is. is Teaching us here in this passage, if you begin with verse 12 and you work through verse 17, you must come away with the impression that this is entirely different from anything that the world offers. It's it's a baffling thought to me that Christians are so reluctant to be here, so reluctant to be engaged with it. And it begs the question, do they know Christ at all? Because what Paul is saying to me and to you is that the redeemed of Christ exists within the context of this very body. We are a created community by the word for the glory of God. That's what we're doing. This is not the Grange. This is not the Knights of Columbus. This is not not the Chamber of Commerce. You don't come here with this attitude. It's unfortunate that the churches oftentimes reflect more those types of organizations than they do the fact that we are unique in and to ourselves. Your camaraderie with me and I with you and with those sitting next to you is more significant than anything you've ever experienced in your life. Nay, should I even say more so than even family. Family. we have so missed the mark of the wonder you know people are going to hate heaven because the church is just a microcosm of what we're going to experience in glory people are going to be grossly disappointed if they get there i can't imagine anybody who would be thinking about being disappointed would want to go but nonetheless it's not it's not going to be a music festival It's not going to be a journey concert. It's not going to be a meeting of the Chamber of Commerce. It's not going to be a Grange meeting. It's not going to be a 4-H meeting. It's not even going to be a family picnic in the context of that, but it's going to be a family celebration gathered around Christ and celebrating His finished work. And as we think about that, we contemplate that in the here and now. This is what Horton is, is driving home for us. He goes on to say the Reformers emphasize that when one presumes to sit in a corner by oneself, there is no telling what spirits he or she will receive. But, but God has pledged His Spirit's, capital S, presence wherever the Word is proclaimed. When Luther said that the church is not a penhouse, P-E-N dash house, but a mouthhouse, and when the westminster divines confessed that the spirit blesses the reading but especially the preaching of the word as a means of grace they were asserting that faithful meditative and prayerful reading of scripture in private they were they were they were asserting that faithful meditative and prayerful reading of scripture in private or home or family devotions was subordinate to the public ministry of the word in the common life of the church. How many times have I heard, Pastor, we weren't at church on Sunday, but we had our devotions. You weren't at church, and that wasn't church when you had your devotions. Your family worship at home is important, but it's not church. Nor is it a substitute for church. Nor can it be a substitute for church. Frankly, if that's what you're doing as a substitute for church, you're in disobedience to scripture. Do you think God's going to bless that? We've become altogether too casual about church. We've relegated it to the back of our minds in the context of importance. Horton goes on to write, Just as the word creates the community, it can only be truly heard, received, and followed in the concrete covenantal exchanges within that community. Writing as a self-professed Jewish Gnostic, Harold Bloom has approvingly characterized American religion generally as Gnostic. Now, this is important. Paul here is dealing with the influence of a Gnostic, a early Gnostic, in the church of Colossae. Experience over objective truth. Syncretism with paganism. Inner experience versus objectively resting in the finished work of Christ. Listen to what he says. Bloom has approvingly characterized American religion generally as Gnostic. An inner word, spirit, and church set over against an external word, spirit, and church. Evangelical pietism began as a renewal movement in the churches of the Reformation, but it increasingly tended to reduce the faith to a subjective inner experience. The real action happened either in private devotions or in, in separate bodies, or holy clubs, Bible studies, what we would call small groups today. American revivalism was more radical still, expecting the real action of Christian formation to take place outside the ordinary ministry of the church altogether. Christians should still gather weekly, of course, but the spirit really came down when the evangelist came to town and the extraordinary methods he employed yielded excitement. Sounds like holiness week in Beloit. That's not it. That's not church. So, we need to make certain that as we are looking at this segment of Scripture, verses 12 through 17, Paul is framing for us the the objective and the purpose of the church, the body of Christ. What it is that we do, how we do it, we have certain virtues. Those are demonstrated first and foremost within the body of Christ. We are forbearing and forgiving to each other, unlike the world. We come into this context and we don't carry grudges. We move forward. We live for Christ and live out the reality of our connection to him in the way that we treat each other. You are the elect of God. As a consequence of that, you have been called into this very life. You have been placed here by God for his glory and your benefit. And so when we get to verse 16, we see then that Paul wants to make certain that the content of our worship is reflective of the wonder of what God has done. If you feel as good at leaving a, a concert in a secular context even better perhaps than you are when you're at church, there's something wrong. Now again, I am not saying that I don't like those things, that there's anything wrong with them. I went to John Denver concerts. I like them. I've been to other concerts. I've enjoyed them. I like all sorts of kinds of music. You would be shocked at what I listened to if you were in the car with me. You would perhaps question my sanity in some context, but nonetheless, I understand then that those things are appropriate for that, but they're not appropriate for here, and that the experience that I'm having is simply that. It's just an experience I'm having, but what I'm resting on in Christ is eternal and of consequence forever for me and other people. That's why I take preaching seriously. Yeah, maybe I preach long sometimes, but I got a lot to say. I only get one shot. And I understand that the Spirit blesses the preaching of the Word and it's a benefit to you. And I want it to be. And so Paul here says, we're going to use something. We're going to use these psalms and we're going to use these hymns and we're going to use these spiritual songs to communicate to each other the wonders of what God has done. And so he says that Um, This singing is to both each other and to God. And this is instructive to us for our gathered worship. Our singing is not simply to warm individual hearts, but to testify to, instruct, and edify each other. And though we may have sung the words of the current songs that we sang, and we sang this morning, and though we all may be speaking the same words, this is nevertheless a God-ordained means of instruction and edification for the whole. I think it's important as you're looking indeed at Psalm 18 or even other songs that we have seen, I'm Rock of Ages, the one song, Poor and Needy Sinners. That was a good reminder to me today. It was a good reminder to you as well of who we were before God saved us who we continue to be. We still need Him every day. We need the Gospel all the time. We need to know that I can go to Jesus Christ all the time, every day, every moment, and that I cannot exhaust His his 10,000 charms. That they're inexhaustible, that they're always there, that He's always there for me. To be reminded of the wonder of His grace and His mercy. I think it's important for us to be reminded of that. As I noted last week, we may be instructed at times to simply sing to God and not worry about the person next to us and what they may think of our voice. But the fact is that we are to consider the person next to us and to realize that we are addressing our praise to God, that while we're doing that, we are also speaking truth into our brothers' and sisters' heart. And so when Paul talks about psalms, most, as I said, commentators believe that he's reaching back into the psalms of David primarily, which would have been well known to these folks. This would have been familiar to them in terms of of having sung them and and worked through them before. And it's by this means that teaching and, and revelation occurs because the Psalms would contain profound truths about God as we saw this morning in Psalm 18. Again, my reason for reading it was intentional to set the context for what we would be looking at today, to be a reminder to us, wow, that Psalm's got a lot of theology in it, and it's pretty deep theology. That's not Necessarily the 7 Eleven stuff that we hear so often in churches today, which is banal, frankly. It's amusement, which means no thinking. And so, here for Paul, the psalm is an actual psalm from the book of Psalms, sung in worship to God and for the edification of the believers. Some believe it could also be a song that was composed along those same lines and used for the same purposes. It could also entail the fact that it was sung along with a musical instrument as David would sometimes say in the psalm, you'll read a psalm and it says to be sung and accompanied by a harp or a lyre or something like that. And so it's clear that Paul is connecting us back into the foundation of God's Word as it relates to the content of our worship and the focus of our worship. The word hymns in this particular verse is used, is used only here in Ephesians 5.19. If you want to go back, you can look at Ephesians 5.19, and let's, let's just look there for a moment um, just to be reminded because it's important in terms of emphasis. So repetition is important, right? You, you, want, you want something to be driven into somebody, you repeat it often. Well, it's significant that Paul in Ephesians 5.19 would say this, Let's go to 18. And do not get drunk with wine. Doesn't mean that you can't drink it, but there is an instruction as it relates to the abuse of it or the overindulgence in it. That can be an issue. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so it's significant that the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus was circulated to the church in Colossae. So they got to read this twice. They heard this exhortation twice from Paul. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's written down twice for us. That's a big deal. That's significant. In the Gospels, when Christ wanted us to know something, he would emphasize it by saying, verily, verily, I say unto you. There's an emphasis on that. There's an emphasis here because of its repetition. And so we know as we look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, that Paul is given the same exact instruction to another church on this issue of corporate music worship. That's significant. A completely different church. And so, with the word hymns here, Paul, as we note, uses it in Ephesians 5.19. Digging into the etymology of this word, it describes a song composed and sung in praise of God. And indeed, we know from our prior study in the book of Colossians that chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 is likely a portion of a hymn that was sung by the church. Go back and reflect on the content, the doctrine, the theology of verses 15 through 20. It is like the deep end of the pool. You've got Trinitarian truths. You've got all types of truths about the attributes of God and the work and person of Christ and who he is. He's the physical manifestation of God, the triune God, all of that. The word songs, as used by Paul. It's also mentioned in Ephesians 5.19. It's also referenced by John in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 14.3, John uses the same word to communicate to us that we will sing a new song. And in Revelation 15.3, it's the same word used to, t- to, to, to address the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So, again tying it back into those types of songs that are sung in recognition of the work and person of Jesus Christ and the wonder of God's glory and His provision and His magnitude and His wonder is, again, the content of the song, is, again, the emphasis here by Paul. Now, as Paul continues, he says this idea of spiritual connected to the word songs that's significant too, and this is, this is important. When Paul connects the word spiritual to the word song, he's noting, with reference to what is, that, that, the, that the Spirit is at work with regard to the content or it's corresponding to the work of the Holy Spirit in relationship to that form of worship. It's indeed a sacred song, if you will. Some commentators have noted that it could be related to a song that is prompted in the context of its writing or its content based upon Scripture by the Holy Spirit relating back to the Psalms. Or, more necessarily, that it's sacred because of its content. Interestingly enough, in Ephesians 5.19, Paul makes reference to the idea that we are to be filled with the Spirit. That occurs in the latter part of verse 18. And the filling of the Spirit then corresponds with the content of the worship related to psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So here's what's important. The notion then is this. It's not one of quantity, but of control. It's not one of quantity, but of control. Thus we should simply conclude that Paul is describing songs that are offered in praise under the control of the Holy Spirit. This is significant. So, now all of a sudden, you better have your pneumatology right. Now you got to know who the Holy Spirit is. Now you've got to understand the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is that? Is He causing people to roll around on the ground? Is He dropping gold dust out of air filters? Is He filling your teeth with gold? Is He causing you to jump up in gibberish excitement, saying words of nothing? No. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? I will send to you a helper, the Paracletos, and he will aid you and assist you in what? In knowing me. In knowing who? Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's ministry and his work is to exemplify the work in person of Jesus Christ. He is not subject to, nor does he command worship. He says, Worship him. He directs you to him all the time. This is what's problematic with the charismatic movement. There's an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit to the detriment of Jesus Christ. Psalm 2, kiss the son lest you make the father angry. And so, what we're seeing here, then, for Paul is that the Holy Spirit's involvement in our singing, in our worship, is necessarily going to make it Christ centered and focused. That's what happens. The issue is of control, and it's not reckless control. It's not abandoned control. It's not hysteria. It's not, it's not all of those things that are so attached to that movement today. I'm never, I, it's never, I never in never cease to be shocked by what I see. It's something new all the time, and it's just more nonsense. That's not of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's of some spirit, small s but it's not of the Holy Spirit. So, Paul here is enumerating these classifications to make a point. That in our gathered worship, we must be teaching and admonishing one another so that the word of Christ has central place in our worship and is made to dwell richly in our hearts. That's what's going on here. And so the teaching and admonishing are connected to the content of the worship that we're engaged in musically within the church, and if you wanted to, you could break this down syntactically in the context of of rewording it like this. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing within thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now... It's interesting. At the end of this verse, Paul says that we are to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. What does that mean? Well, he's saying to us that our singing is to be carried out with thankfulness. With thankfulness. The word that's used here for the root of this word thankfulness is grace. And indeed, some translations actually use the word grace. I think the King James Version does. The New American Standard, as we see, can, is, has, has translated into mean, to the meaning of thankfulness, which relates to an attitude of gratitude, if you will, in our singing. That our thankfulness is connected to divine grace. It relates back to the doctrine of election in verse 12. You've got to be kidding me. No, I'm not. There it is again. The doctrine of election is everywhere. Our thankfulness is driven by the fact that God saw fit to save us. That salvation is connected to his grace, which is exemplified in his electing us to salvation and not leaving us to ourselves. And because of that, I come to church with other people who, like me, have been saved, a poor and needy sinner, and we just can't keep our joy contained because of it. That's what's going on. The focus isn't the performance, the focus isn't the entertainer, the focus is Jesus Christ, our worship is vertical, not horizontal, it's edifying horizontally because it is vertical. This is what they're doing. So this is about gratitude in our hearts. And this isn't, as some have said, about silent singing. Well, I don't sing, so I'm just going to kind of be silent. Well, you know, we're actually kind of commanded here to sing. That's the idea. So it says that this thankfulness is what? With thankfulness in your where? Hearts to God. So the word heart, as we know, refers to the essential core of one's being, including the intellect, emotion, and volition The idea here is that a heart informed by doctrine sings it out. A heart informed by biblical doctrine sings out the doctrine. This means the indwelling word we share among ourselves by teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs should have its effect first within us, and then all our responses to one another should arise from an inside-out orientation. We do not derive our heart's condition from outward circumstances and relationships. Oh, man. Pastor, you're being way too hard on us today. That's not fair. But That's what Paul's saying. Think about their outward... Now, think about Colossae for a minute. Think about their outward circumstances and experiences. They weren't very good, were they? Drinking muddy water, bugs in their bed that could kill them. Food that had sand in it, no doctors, getting hurt at work, every other kid dying in childbirth, people not living much into their late 30s, early 40s, life was hard. What's going to be a joyful thing for them to reflect on? The fact that God loves them and cares for them and saved them. That's what's happening here. So we don't derive our heart's condition from outward circumstances and relationships, rather We allow the word of Christ to richly dwell within us and then govern our outward relationships and interactions from this inward state of heart. From a heart truly grateful for the ongoing grace of God received by His Spirit's work through Christ's word. We sing all of this singing with thankfulness in our hearts. And it's all directed to God. Soli Deo Gloria. And we live with one another in this word-reigning, grace-receiving, edification-dealing way on a horizontal level because there is all the while a vertical relationship with God that is governing all, all of our earthly relationships. Wow. And all the time we're being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the means by which this is accomplished The Holy Spirit's role is to bring glory to Christ. He serves as the Illuminator, capital I, who enables each of us to understand the words of Christ. So we're filled with the Spirit in this context as we sing these songs reflecting on the wonders and glories of Christ. And so what we know from this passage and this collection of passages, and we'll conclude it next Sunday in verse 17, Lord willing, is that God's intent is that we live together in peace ruling, thanks expressing, word indwelling, and praise singing assemblies. That's what God wants. We live together in peace ruling, thanks expressing, word indwelling, and praise singing assemblies. That's what we're called to. That is something that is diametrically opposed to what the world is offering us today and what most churches are offering us. Most churches are offering you an experience based upon how bizarre or how new and different they can be. Not based upon the preaching of God's word with passion and with, with, the, with the presence of the Holy Spirit, with the unction of the Spirit. So, this is, this is good stuff. I mean, this is one of those verses you looked at before, and you're thinking, "Ah, okay, just get the next one. No, this, this informs us as to what God wants. And, and I hope that the idea of the fact that God has seen fit to bring you into the context of this type of, of, of objective-based, if you want to use the word experience, fine, reality is my favorite, more favorite term. I I, I hope that it strikes in your heart a real sense of gratitude and wonder for what He has done for you. Isn't it great that He has brought us together? Isn't it wonderful that He has joined us together? This is why being part of the body of Christ is so important. It's not to be casually dismissed, and it's not easily found. I'm not saying that Community Bible Church is perfect but we make a diligent effort to make certain that what we are doing is glorifying to God based upon the content of His Word. One of the things I often say, you know me well, is soli Deo Gloria. This is what Paul is driving us to. Is our worship solely Deo Gloria? If you want to know truly what this all means, you can turn to Christ and He will save you. If you call upon His name, He will save you. That's the promise of Scripture. You can't work your way into heaven. I don't care how good of a person you are. And frankly, I don't care how bad of a person you've been. You can come to Him and He will save you. And He will in no wise cast you out. That is the wonders of His grace. This thankfulness in your heart can be known by you. Isn't that great? And it's simple. In faith, look to Christ. There's nothing else to do. There's no pre-preparation. You don't have to be a good person for a week before you get saved. Like some people have taught, preparationism. Some Puritans fell into that trap. A person had to obey the law for a period of, a season of their life to be prepared for salvation. No. No, not at all. The thief on the car, cross had no preparation. God saved him right there and then. And he was with Christ that day in paradise. not that wonderful? Lord, we love you. Thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for providing to us. Thank you for creating within us a new heart that wants to worship you in psalm and song and hymn. Thank you for giving us this important instruction. Forgive us for not following in the past. Help us to be more attentive to your word. Forgive us for forming things in our own minds and doing them rather than following your instructions. Thank you for being gracious to forgive us for such things. We rejoice that we are known by you through Jesus Christ who never failed in any way. We can rest in his finished work even when we fail. Thank you for that. We praise you and we rejoice that we can call upon you this day in the name of Christ, in whose name we pray.